Welcome to the Research Reimagine podcast, brought to you by Nottingham Trent University. I'm your host, Helen Darby-Dowman, and I'll be inviting some of NTU's brightest minds to explore how their research is helping us to deepen our understanding of the world. From online addictions to transgender rights and sleep disorders, listen as we discuss some of society's most pressing challenges and uncover some of the ways our research is making a difference. Culture is the glue that binds individuals and forms communities. But why is it important to protect these characteristics for future generations? Today, we're going to be talking about Nottingham, a city that is rich in culture that many of our listeners may not be aware of. From legends to the lace industry, we're going to be exploring some of Nottingham's history and culture to find out more about the role culture plays in shaping our own identities. I have two experts on Nottingham's history and culture joining us here today. Professor Natalie Brabber, who is an expert in language and linguistics. Thank you for joining us, Natalie. Can you tell us a little bit about your expertise? Yeah, so I'm a social linguist, which means I'm interested in language and identity. And my particular focus is on accents and dialects, particularly in the East Midlands. We also have Amanda Briggsgood, who is head of department in Nottingham School of Art and Design for fashion, textile and knitwear. Thanks very much for joining us. Can you tell me a little bit about your expertise? Yep, I can do. Um, I, I work within fashion textiles within the school and also the Fashion Textile Research Centre. And um, One of the things I've been focusing on in research for several years now is the lace archive that we hold in the school. So I'm interested in its creative legacy in Nottingham and beyond, but also its kind of more recent sort of social history um, and, and engaging with communities in the region. Thank you so much again, both of you, for joining us. I know you do lots of research in culture and heritage, um, and particularly in the East Midlands and in Nottingham specifically. Can you tell me a bit about what you've been doing in this area um, and the importance of it? Uh, yeah, so I noticed when I moved to Nottingham quite a number of years ago now that there hadn't been any linguistic research done on the region, which I thought was quite unusual because, as you can hear, the language that's used here is very different to, to other areas so over the the last 15 years, I've been looking at collecting uh, data from around the area, speaking to people, local communities to find out about what their language is like, what they think about their language and um, working with particular groups such as minors. And Amanda, what have you been been doing? So most recently, we've done a project which was funded by the Heritage Lottery Fund um, called Textile Tales. And we've been also working with local communities on sharing their oral histories of working in the broader fashion textile industry from about 1980 to 2005. So we did a series of roadshows around the region, um, inviting people to come in, talk about their experiences um, of work. And many times people also brought in objects for us to look at and photograph. And um, all of those oral histories are now stored in the Leicester Oral History Archive. And so tell me a little bit about Nottingham Lace and the history of it. Yeah, so um, it, it's got a long history, over two centuries. So uh, the beginning of the 19th century was the sort of discovery of, of uh, the technology um, of machine-made lace, which had developed out of framework knitting. So the framework knitting machine um, had been uh, invented by Reverend Lee in Calverton in Nottingham in the 16th century. Um, And that technology was adapted and developed and adapted until uh, the technology could produce something that was was lace-like, that we would call lace, which is essentially holes um, surrounded by fabric, um, the holes forming the pattern and and the kind of creative um, value of the fabric. Um, and that 
really set off the industry from the beginning of the 19th century. Uh, the, there wasn't really a role of a designer, so the role of the designer developed quite slowly. So by, by about uh, 1830, there was about eight designers um, known of in, in the Nottingham region. But there was Nottingham was kind of facing competition, mainly from France with handmade lace and Italy with embroidered laces. And um, one of the things that the government wanted to do was kind of build a series of art schools to develop the, mainly the textile creative industries. So the first art schools were Nottingham, Manchester and in York, which were supporting all those kind of uh, uh, textile trades that, that we had across the Midlands and the north of England. So the first art school opened in Nottingham in 1845, sorry, 1843. And the first purpose-built art school was Waverley Building, which is still part of NTU today. And that was 1865 that that was built. So, um, you know, the art school was kind of really important and significant in the developing of, a, of sort of lace designers and, uh, and supporting the lace industry. The lace industry helped fund that Waverley Building they were the first governors of the art school. So they were very sort of closely connected. Natalie, so you talked about obviously when you came to Nottingham and just your natural area of research led you into looking at dialect of the area. Can you just tell me a little bit more about what you found? Yeah, so one of the things I started off looking at was I was interviewing uh, people just to hear differences of, you know, whether people from Nottinghamshire sounded different to people from Derbyshire and Leicestershire. Um and quite a few people that I interviewed said to me, oh, you should speak to miners because they've got a whole language of their own. And I did start interviewing miners as well. And the thing that's really important is that when people think of things like heritage, they tend to think of stuff like buildings and objects. But actually, our language is a really important part of our heritage and our identity as well. And that comes across in different ways. So, for example, we can look at the miners and we can look at... <clears throat> all these very specific words they have for the tools that they use, the jobs that they did, um, the processes underground. And now that these mines have closed, that language is likely to disappear, uh, which is why I've been working with it to preserve it. And the other thing that I was looking at, I did a lot of work with, with school children and young people to get their idea of what they thought about the local dialect. And uh, I worked with over 300 young people and they were actually in the whole quite negative about the language that's used in the East Midlands which I thought was a shame because it is such an important part of who we are. So over the past few years we've been trying to get people to engage with sort of raising awareness of languages heritage and with different funded projects uh, through the Arts Council and Heritage Lottery been trying to really get people to to value the language that they use and to to make them more aware of 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 um about the, the importance and uh, of, of local language. And Amanda, why do you think it's so important that we investigate so our history in, in the lace industry, for instance? Well, I think it's it's got quite a strong resonance with what Natalie's just talking about, really. And while lace is a product and it's something you that is more tangible than language, you know, it's the same sort of communication uh, across generations um, that I think is quite, there's quite a link there. Um, so obviously the fashion and textile industry, there were at the height, there were about 60,000 people in Nottingham in, in early 20th centuries working in the lace industry. But also there was a wider fashion and textile industry in the region as well of knitwear, um, of kind of uh, hosiery, 
um, and just of fashion making, of garment making. So, you know, the fashion textile industry employed a lot of people. That that industrial context has largely disappeared now, not completely, but it's largely disappeared. There is still a number of generations who, who worked in it and have a story to tell and want to feel valued and that they added value to this, this city. Um, but also they want to tell that story to you know, the future generations and the younger generations now who have very little understanding. I can remember being um, at Light Night a few years ago um, in the city and one of our PhD students was making chocolate lace and putting it on sticks and giving it out to people on one of the stalls in uh, just off Market Square. And I just remember hearing small children saying, why are they making lace? I don't understand. And then just hearing parents and grandparents explaining, oh, well, Nottingham's known for its lace. So it's just kind of a way of, of, of sharing that story across the generations. And if we can do it in a small way, you know, with a chocolate lollipop, you know, we can do it in, in other ways as well. And hopefully those oral histories will um, play that part um, in that communication. The mining industry and the lace industry are both obviously important parts of Nottingham's history. Um, but do you want to, can we explore a bit further about why, you know, it is in the past? Why is it so important that we keep looking at it and we keep educating people about it? You know, what, why should people care about it? Yeah, so, well, I mean, it's uh, like Amanda was saying as well, the lease industry. So the, the coal industry was hugely important to the economy of the region. Um, and in 1947, when coal mines were nationalised in, in East Midlands, were 120 mines. So employing thousands and thousands of mainly men, but some women um, as well. They're all gone. Um, and the mining heritage groups that I was working with were very concerned that, that younger people would no longer know or understand what coal was and exactly the, the work that they did and they were really keen to we, we did lots of work with school children where we took school children into these mining heritage groups and they talked to the miners and they told their stories and entire communities were built around these mines and the closure of the mines caused you know, fracture and sort of economic collapse for some for some of these regions and it's really important to allow people to value the past that, that is gone as well. I think I think the things that are significant, particularly for me, about lace is that it just it demonstrates a level of innovation. So Nottingham lace uh, is is something that's made on a Nottingham lace machine. That lace machine, wherever it is in the world, is making Nottingham lace. So whether it's out in China, whether it's out in uh, you know in Northern um, America, um, it's making Nottingham lace. So the innovation is multi-layered that came from this small city. Um, it's engineering and it's also creativity. And I think that that's important for people to know that they come from a city, that this city had global impact with this beautiful fabric. And people are always seduced by lace. It, it's an incredibly seductive fabric. It's got so many connotations, cultural connotations in the way that we use it around weddings and christenings. It's, you know, and, and around death, it's got such um, powerful connotations. So people are always fascinated by the fabric wherever you go. But I suppose it's just really recognising all of that innovation and creativity that was in here that created something that we, we still talk about. I know you've already, I think, already talked about what Nottingham lace is, but just again, could you, just for me and um, for the listeners, it, 
just be specific exactly what is it that what would we see with a piece of Nottingham lace just so well Nottingham lace so handmade lace uh, was being made from about the 15th century um, and is still being made today Um, and uh, you know there's been particularly European cities that have um, reputations for particular styles of lace it was always incredibly expensive because it's time consuming it's you know, people focused and we've all heard stories about, you know, uh, schools of young girls just who would just sit making lace for hours and days. You know, Marianne Antoinette's wedding dress that took sort of 12 months to make her veil. You know, there's all these kind of folk stories about handmade lace. So essentially what, what Nottingham and Machine Made Lace was trying to do was to speed that up and to make it more affordable. So, you know, the Industrial Revolution gave it the, the sort of tools uh, to to do that um, and uh, and it could be sort of democratized really in terms of its you know the middle classes were able to um, start to buy lace you know and we've all got images haven't we of Victorian living rooms and Victorian ladies sort of draped in lace and, and homes draped in lace with antimacassars on the back of your chair or your your lace neck curtains so it was there isn't a style associated with it, which is what often people ask me. It's about emulating as best you possibly can all these incredible handmade lace styles from around the globe, mainly mainly Europe, essentially. But um, you know, and we have—I mean, we've had people from the V&A come to look at the lace archive that we have in the School of Art and Design. Um, and you know, we've got some beautiful examples where actually even you know incredible experts are struggling to tell which one is a man-made, sorry, machine-made um, piece of lace versus a handmade. They're not all like that. Sometimes you can tell very quickly and easily by um, how um, highly structured and sort of rigid it is and repetitive. Whereas you know. The, the handmade ones have those kind of idiosyncrasies in them, you know, that you, you feel like you're looking at something that is actually the result of human hand labour rather than machine labour. So how you talk about, obviously, the lace archives, can you talk to me a little bit more about like the methods um, that, that we are using to preserve the history um, and the disappearing communities that I suppose have been going and, and the work, obviously, that you've been doing in your own areas that actually is preserving that? Yeah, so the thing... The reason that I've been doing a lot of this work as well is that, um, I mean, Amanda talked earlier about the sort of the tangible versus the intangible. So tangible heritage is heritage that you can see and intangible heritage you can't see. So it can be traditions, you know, it can be Morris dancing, clog dancing. It can be particular ways of making wicker baskets or a language as well. And, um, you know, whether it's poetry or song or or, or particular sort of varieties of language. Now, this kind of intangible heritage Um, UNESCO has a convention for protecting it Um, and there's different things in place to make sure that that these types of traditions don't disappear but the UK hasn't signed this convention which means in the UK there's nothing in place to stop particular language varieties disappearing uh, which is the reason that that I've been working on this and I think working with local communities is is crucial they're the ones who have the knowledge and the information and um, it's not that we're saying language shouldn't change, but it's a fact about, it's interesting to understand about, say, for example, older dialect words that are disappearing. So one of the most recent uh, projects I've been working on is Lost Words, where I picked 50 local dialect words that I thought were interesting. And we were 
going around schools with a, an illustrator, Hannah Sottle, and a, a creative writer, Andrew Graves. And young people were writing poems and short stories using these dialect words that Hannah had beautifully illustrated. Uh, and that exhibition is traveling around Inspire Libraries for a year and just getting people to think about these words. So a lot of the children, uh, when they saw the word, say, oh, oh, yeah, I remember my granny used to say that, or I still use that word. So it was really just getting people to engage with something that they generally take for granted. We talk, can you tell us a bit about some of those words? Yeah, yeah really so um, so the ones that, that are really common that people still know, of course, are cob, the eternal, what do you call a bread roll? Mardi, uh, oh. for grumpy. <laughs> uh, nesh, if you feel the cold, which I think is a, a, a great word. But some of them are words that the younger people didn't really recognise anymore. So, for example, cow lady for a ladybird mm -hmm. or a spadger for a sparrow. Um, and some of them are sort of more mining related. So, for example, a snap tin is the, the box a miner would put his sandwiches in. I'm sure the lease industry must have similar yeah, uh, yeah. particular words yeah. to it. And also um, poems and nursery rhymes. Mm. And, you know, there's the wind the bobbin up yeah. um, nursery rhyme. Um, but, yeah, there are lots of words. Um, twist hand mm. and pubs in Nottingham used to have... Um, particular rooms that were for the twist hands um they were the kind of king of the factory really they ran the lace machines they they earned the most money in the factory and so they were gave special treat given special treatment in in the pubs in in nottingham so yeah lots of labels mm. and descriptions of technologies and machines and as well as collecting stories which obviously you know you have with the archive as well it's finding ways to engage people with it so mm. for example with with poetry, with song, with art. That's how you can then sort of pull people in because mm. most people use language every day, but they don't stop and think about it. Mm. But actually when you get them doing things like this, you think, oh yeah. Um, I mean, one of the, the people who was part of a project I was working on had been writing poetry for 50 years. And after we'd been working together, he said, oh, I've just written my first poem in local dialect because you said it was okay. <laughs> that's amazing think, isn't it yeah because he's always been writing in standard english because he thought that was proper yeah. see that that fascinates me because i moved to nottingham for university many moons ago and things like um being called nesh and and i was like what what are you talking about you know i always think that the the, the the word for a alley like how people you know yeah that is what, what is that one for in nottingham can you remember jitty so you can have jitty or twitchell yeah, snicket you hear as well. A snicket, yes, I've heard people, and, you, and it's amazing. Um, but I find that fascinating that local people wouldn't even feel comfortable or they feel like it is not the right thing to do to write a poem in their own dialect. Because so, it's drilled into us, you know, at school. And, you know, a lot of the, the younger people I spoke to said, you know, their parents would say, oh, pronounce your words properly or don't use words like this. But actually, I always like to think it's not, it's not wrong. It's just a, a different way of doing things. It's just non-standard. And we should value that in the same way. Yes, it's important to be able to speak standard English, but it's important to have that link to your local language as well. I mean, Amanda, I know you've also done work in communities. Have you got any examples like Natalie had where, you know, it's had an impact or you've had a lovely story? So we've uh, we ran a season of events um, called Lace Here Now um, across the city. So it was I was working really closely with Nottingham Castle. Um, at that at that 
um, point on, on that project, but we also engage with Nottingham University, um, at Lakeside um, and Nottingham Contemporary and Nottingham College. And we ran a number of events. So we had exhibitions. So we had staff response to the Lace Archive and we exhibited that at Lakeside. We had students working with the Lace Archive and being inspired to create textile practice. People were doing that through printed textiles, woven, embroidered fashion responses um, to it as well. Um, we had storytelling events. Uh, we had walks around the lace market and sort of historical walks talking about that. Just really engaging people as, as much as we could in as many um, different sort of varieties. We had some poetry events as well where you know, people looked at the archive um, and worked with a poet on on kind of bringing together their thoughts and creative responses to it. And um, yeah, that, that was a really fantastic, if incredibly hard work, because it, it went over about six months and we had lots of lots of weekend events, but we reached a lot of people um, and people came into Nottingham um, to, to see that as well. And the whole thing ended with a, a, a a big exhibition at Nottingham Castle, which was um, fantastic. Um, and I suppose more recently is, is the road shows that we ran with Textile Tales that I was talking about at the beginning of our conversation. Um, we were situating ourselves in, in different sort of textile venues where there'd been lots of textile factories. So we would rock up in libraries or at Ruddington Framework Knitters Museum. We wanted to keep it out of the university because we know some people feel intimidated in coming into into the city. So, um, so yeah, we went out into, into Loughborough, into sort of Derbyshire, and just sat and met people and just incredibly emotional stories and then the kind of pride and emotion that people reflect nostalgically um, on in, in terms of their working life and what, what contribution they felt they made to a business but also to the to the city and and to its prosperity, you know, over over a number of decades. So yeah, there were there were very heartwarming stories. Um, people felt very sad when they were at the, when a factory closed, um, and they were having to be part of dismantling machines. You know, the real raw emotion that came out of some of those conversations about having to dismantle machines that you'd worked on for decades um, was really palpable. I mean. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say it's really important to give people skills to do things as well because we've noticed some some of the projects that we've done, once we've done events with people, they've gone on and done them themselves. They don't need us anymore then. They, they can, some of the creative writers we've worked with have gone on to create their own events and do poetry readings and, and, and do things. They don't need us in the sense that they can then have the skills and some of the mining groups we've worked with, and this is the joy of being in a university, is some of these mining heritage groups said there were certain skills they felt they were lacking, which we could help them with. And I'm sure you must have done similar things with these workshops where they would say, oh, we don't really know how to archive photographs properly or we don't really know how to store certain types of digital data. Well, we could run a workshop on that, bring them all together. They could, sh We could share good practice. They could look at what each other were doing and then they can go off and continue the important work that they're doing part of the heritage lottery fund project was about training people as well so we had what we called citizen historians who had oral history training um to actually engage with the project and could you know obviously could take that into uh, future projects 
obviously the mining and the lace industries had such an impact on these communities. So, it, well, it was they were huge communities that then disappeared. And so tell me a little bit about the impact of the work that you've been doing. I mean, we have discussed it already, but the impact that the work you've gone into these communities and brought almost probably a bit of a light back into the work that they were doing before. Can, is there anything more we can you can share with us about the impact that it's actually had and the difference it's making? Um, yeah, I think I think some of the things that uh, we, we felt that had an impact back. So when I first started looking after the Lace Archive, which is around 2006, I, you know, and it, it was it was a new area to me and I'm not from Nottingham so getting to know this industry and what had happened to it and starting to go out and talk to people about it what what became very apparent is that they felt a sense of loss um they were in Nottingham uh at that at sort of in 2006 what had just closed down was the lace museum which was in the the lace market itself it was a private museum and it closed very suddenly at the beginning of the the century. And then around 2008, the Fashion and Textile Museum was closed as well. And that, that, that was for numerous reasons. The City Council owned that and that was for numerous reasons. So when I started asking questions and talking to people locally, there was just this loss. It was like, it hasn't happened. There's no lace. You can't see lace in Nottingham anymore. Where where can you, you know, why have they taken all this stuff away from us that celebrates this heritage? So a lot of what I've been trying to do um, since then is is find a way to sort of raise raise people's awareness, raise the council's awareness, just raise generally the cultural awareness that actually there is significance and there is value and people will come and see it and engage with it. Um, if if there is something for people to come and look at, so you know at that time you the, when in Market Square there was um, the sort of local hub for tourism, there was nothing of lace. You know people would go in and, and couldn't ask anything. There are now things that on their website that you can link into of other events. So I think part of this I'm I'm not trying to claim responsibility for all of this, but part of this raising awareness has helped build a narrative that the castle has continued to use. So us doing things like Lace Here Now together and doing this season of events across the city just helped them kind of build um, their argument um, about how the castle was kind of redesigned and they've now got a lace gallery in there. The Fashion and Textile Museum, which closed and everything went into storage, is now at Newstead Abbey. And that's, you know, that's a world-renowned collection that they have there. That's a really incredible collection. We have scholars, local people coming to our lace archive um, at the university. So just by raising its awareness, having exhibitions, um, creating something where people can talk about it, look at it and, and share their history has been, I think, a really rewarding experience, you know, for that community, but also for me working with it, you know, to really have that face-to-face -face engagement. It's not something that just happens between the university building mm, in the same way for that the the lace industry sort of disappeared um a lot of the where the former mines were had all been landscaped and were either now car parks or housing estates or like gedling country park was a, a spoil heap from from uh, gedling pit um and some of the miners as i said earlier were concerned that younger generations wouldn't remember this anymore and one of the schools i went into 
um, was with a particularly sort of younger group. They were about 10 years old and their school jumper had uh, the headstocks of, uh, of the mine on there. And I said to some of the children in the class, what is that? And they said, oh, we don't know. And uh, so, you know, it is disappearing from, from memory for some. And the other problem that we have in, in Nottinghamshire is a lot of people, the, stri the, the strike of 84, 85 is what signifies everything about mining, which almost 40 years on is still very bitter and very traumatic for many people. So a lot of the work that I've been trying to do with the, the groups that I work with is to think beyond the strike. The strike isn't everything that there is about mining. And one of the photographic exhibitions that um, that we put on was called Coal Community and Change. And it was all about thinking, yes, there were strikes, but we had panels on sort of the importance of local community, women in the mines, um, what happened when the mines started closing, to try and raise awareness that there, there were other things as well. We don't have to keep harking back to this really horrible period that, that divided communities. And Natalie, the work that you've done with in communities, has it kind of helped bring any communities together and, and, and work in a more positive way? I think perhaps it's maybe making people think about the past in a slightly different way. So there are certain communities who, for, for them, the, the strike is still a very recent memory um, and they, they don't always feel comfortable working with other people. But it, it's just about broadening out, making people realise that Nottinghamshire mining isn't just about the strike. There's more. There's a really long history of heritage and culture that we shouldn't ignore. So by getting people to engage with things like poetry and writing and song, we can really open up a whole different side because for younger generations, these memories aren't going to be the same anymore. So the programme Sherwood that was out recently that looked at, um, at, at, the, at the minor strike, um, BBC Radio Nottingham did a, a, a Vox Pops with young people and asked them if they knew what the word scab meant. And they only the only meaning that they had still was of the, the wound that you have uh, on your skin. So things are changing and uh, we just want to really get people thinking about the fact that their their local language and culture is important. Can can I ask, have all the mines in Nottinghamshire closed now? Yeah, the last yeah. one was Thorsby in 2015. Okay. And okay. it was, the th I think after that, there was two mines left in Yorkshire, but they closed in the same year. So oh, the same year. Yeah, 2015. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, there have been talks about a new mine opening in Cumbria, but... Okay. Um, I mean, the thing that's that's so fascinating when you look at the language as well with, with mining is miners travel. So as mines close, miners have always moved around. So in, in Nottinghamshire, there's a, there's a huge influx. There was a huge influx of miners from the northeast and from Scotland, from Eastern Europe. Uh, Gedling was called the Pit of Nations because there was miners from all different countries working there. And that you see in the language as well. So some of the people that we spoke to said, for example, um, Northeastern miners would use the word Mara for their friend, and that became became known as as being really typical of Northeastern miners. And um, one of the miners I interviewed, I was asking him about different names for hammers, and he came up with the word Mortic. And I hadn't heard any of the other miners use this before. And I was trying to, you know, get a little bit more information about it. had did he know where this word came from? Had he heard any other mines miners using this? And he said, No, it's only really local to our mine. And when I went away, I was puzzling over this and thinking, there has to be a reason for this. And it was a mine that was known for having lots of Eastern European miners. So I looked up um, in a Polish online dictionary the word for hammer, which is miotek. 
So it seemed that these Polish miners, or East, other maybe from other Eastern European countries as well, had brought their word for hammer with them. It became adopted without even people realising that's where it came from. So in terms of preserving like cultural heritage for future generations, I mean, what, what do you think should be done? I, I think, you know, in terms of what I manage and look after, I look after a lace archive. The lace archive that we have in the school is... Um, is it's it's a, the result of donations. It's not a museum collection, you know. Nobody's gone out collecting particular um, examples. It's a it's a result of donations, and we think from about eighteen eighty to about nineteen forty, there is um, a little bit of uh, student work going up to about the nineteen sixties. There what there is a couple of special collections that we have. So one collection that was put together to show really good examples, the best examples by the Nottingham um, uh, industry uh, just after the war. And um, and so I feel, you know, I'm the custodian of something that I want to make sure it's looked after and we're, we're looking after it um, in terms of, of its kind of material um, care. Uh, but I think I think the thing that I think is most important is the things we've been talking about, really, is sharing it and um, enabling people to talk about it, understand it, reflect on it. And I guess because I'm in a school of art and design and I'm the head of Department of Fashion, Textiles and Knitwear, I want that creativity to live on. So we do projects with students. I had a student from London contact me yesterday who's heard about it and would like to come and see it. So, you know, we, we open that up broadly. We've also done some commercial um, projects as well, which has been really exciting. We did a, a project with Oasis, a high street retailer, um, in 2018. Um, they came, they put together a, a collection of um, prints, weaves, knits, embroidery, all based on, on the collection. So there was about 25 items that they did. And we're at the moment working with a, a company in Sri Lanka, um, and for me, that's really important. It helps us continue to care for the collection, but it also means that that creativity lives on and has future impact. Um, and that that's really important. Um, you know, it's a it's a cultural, creative city that we live in. And um, as I said at the beginning, that innovation and creativity that was there at the beginning of the nineteenth century, I want to make sure that 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 continues because it was immense levels of creativity. Um, and innovation that that was coming from engineers and designers and people who had vision you know and were entrepreneurial so yeah we just want to make sure that that it's looked after so it can continue to inspire so with language you have to be careful because obviously there's examples like say lace workers language or miners language that has has gone and can be preserved but language itself you can't preserve in the same way because language is always changing so the world that we live in is constantly changing. So for language to stop, it doesn't make sense. So we can't sort of say here, we can make a snapshot in time. So say in 2022, this is what language in, in Nottinghamshire sounds like. We can do that. But we want to make sure that that people value the fact that language is different and language can change and that that isn't something to be scared of or to, to think is a bad thing. Uh, you know, you sometimes hear people saying, well, the youth of today or tech speak. But that is just part of language and it's part of a, a changing society. And by getting people to think about language, whether that's an everyday spoken language, whether it's about people coming in from other countries or other regions who have different variation that we can value rather than thinking they sound funny or I don't like the way they sound. Getting people to think about 
song and and music and poetry as well just really making people aware of the richness of of our heritage of our language and that what a powerful thing that is thank you both of you for coming and talking to us about the work you've done i mean it's fascinating hearing about nottinghamshire and nottingham's cultural heritage and just things that are outside perhaps of the things that we normally would think about with buildings and Robin Hood and so forth. I mean, for me, the takeaways of, of the community aspects, the way that you've gone out and worked with communities and, and hearing all those stories from people that have lived it and, and bringing that to the forefront and educating children and just giving everybody that that sense of, I guess, proud, pride of, of what they've done and, and what we've we've had here in Nottingham in the past. I mean, that happens everywhere around the world. So thanks again for shedding a bit more of a light into the world of cultural heritage for us and, and the history of Nottingham. Um, if you want to find out more about Natalie and Amanda's work, please have a look in the description. There'll be links there. Thanks to the listeners and thank you again for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Research Reimagine podcast by Nottingham Trent University. For all of the latest news from the research community at NTU, follow us on Twitter at NTU underscore research or sign up to our research newsletter by visiting ntu.ac.uk forward slash research. Thanks for listening.